Good morning. My name is Aubrey, and with Drew, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm very glad to see you. Thanks, Nick, uh, for reading about these seven trumpets. Wow. So if, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, find this section that Nick read to us, Revelation chapter 8 through chapter 11. After reading a passage like this or hearing it read, I'm reminded that the Bible is a very complicated book. Um, and it's huge. It, the words of the Bible, it's, about, it's a little over 800,000 words. Just to give you something to compare that with, the average novel today in, in the Western civilization is between 80 and 100,000 words. The Harry Potter series of novels all together are just over a million words. So the Bible is almost the size of the whole Harry Potter series. It's, it's huge. It's massive. And not only is it big, it's complex and it's complicated. Now, that is important to recognize because when you're reading the Bible, you need to know that there are these little gifts along the way. There are these places in the Bible that are what a friend of mine refers to as nodal passages. Nodal passages. There, 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 are these, there are these moments in Scripture where you find a passage of Scripture that is so rich and so dense and so concentrated. If you look at it carefully, you'll see that it opens up a view of the entire Bible. It's kind of like the whole Bible condensed down into one sentence. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, is one of those passages. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, is a nodal passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture that takes everything going on in the Bible and kind of gels it down, condenses it down, reduces it down, to this really dense moment. And if you can look at it long enough and deep enough and hard enough, you'll begin to see that it shows you the whole Bible. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and loud voices were heard from heaven. Now the kingdom of the world has passed through our Lord and his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. Now, that is the summary of the whole Bible. You see, the Bible, like the Harry Potter novels, is one single plot that covers lots of little subplots, lots of little stories, lots of little kind of offshoots. In, the, in Harry Potter, it's all held together by the battle going on between Harry and Voldemort. The story the Bible tells is like this. It's got one plot that holds the whole Bible together. And that plot is summed up in this verse. And then you've got all these little subpoints going on. So what is it that the Bible tells? What is the story that holds all of these hundreds of thousands of words together? It is the story of the creator God reclaiming sovereignty over the whole world after it's been hijacked and infected by darkness and death and evil. 
Now look at Revelation eleven fifteen. Now the kingdom of the world is passed over to our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That is the story the Bible tells. It tells the, Bi- the story of the one and only true God reestablishing his sovereignty, his rule, his reign over the world. And Revelation eleven fifteen is one of the sharpest and clearest summaries of God's ultimate purpose for the whole creation. Now, just a little bit in our service, we're going to pray a prayer. We're going to pray a prayer Jesus taught us to pray. And in that prayer, we're going to pray this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. In other words, Jesus said to us, when you pray, the center of your prayer life should be that the story of the Bible happens. The story of the Bible is the kingdom of this world being given to Jesus and his Messiah, and he reigns forever and ever. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, pray that. Pray your kingdom come, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. This is the story of the Bible. It is about the coming of God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. Now, the book of Revelation, like the rest of the Bible, assumes that's the story the Bible is telling. The Bible is telling one story, how the kingdom of this world was hijacked by evil and how it comes about that our Lord and his Messiah gets the kingdom and reigns forever and ever. In other words, the story the Bible tells is finally not about humans leaving this earth and going to a place called heaven. It's about the coming of God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. And then that state of affairs lasting forever. Now, I've just laid all that out there. And I think what we should do when we hear that is say, why? Why should anybody want that? Isn't isn't our... Aren't we learning today that the last thing we need is one president over the whole world, one king over the whole world, one government over the whole world? Haven't we learned through the nasty side effects of colonialism that when suddenly one group or one religion stands up and says, the answer to the world is all of the religions going away and our God running the show for the whole earth. We need to hear what's being said here. The story of the Bible is the story of the Christian God becoming the only God that reigns and has a sovereign authority over the whole earth. And we should all be very honest with that and say, why should anybody want that? Doesn't that obliterate cultural distinctiveness? Doesn't that erase the gifts of ethnic groups? Isn't homogeneity a problem? Why? Why should anybody actually pray to one God, your kingdom, come. Your will be done, not any other God's will, but only your will be done in the whole earth. Why should we want that? Our passage of scripture this morning, Revelation chapter 8 through chapter 11, this whole bit about the seven scrolls, it answers that question. It answers the question why the Christian God becoming the only authority is good. Revelation 8 through 11, this whole bit about the seven trumpets, 
What it's doing is it's showing us in really strange and lurid and bizarre detail that our world is broken. Humans have gone their own way and our rulers have abused their power. Our world is constantly threatened by tyrannical political systems, by violence and hatred and suspicion. And in this passage of scripture, we see that. We see it told like a comic book, like um, Abe Lincoln fighting zombies or whatever. Sort of how that's a version of telling history, but in some like apocalyptic kind of way. That's what's happening here. We're being told history, but in this kind of really bizarre, hyper, lurid, strange way. And what we see is not only is the world broken, but in this passage, it's using comic book kind of genre to say that there's an evil behind the evil. That's what it's doing. For example, look at Revelation chapter 9 verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the land, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And you should think of the Holocaust furnaces. You should think of an infernal, demonic smoke. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts. It gets weird, right? And then skip down to verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Um, okay, I thought it was locusts. And, were ho- and their heads were like what looked like crowns of gold. And their faces were like human faces. Um, their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. <laughs> and it goes on and on, this bizarre stuff. Verse 11, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon. Now, here's a, here's a fundamental rule about reading Revelation. Do not mistake symbol for reality. This is highly symbolic language. This is stylized language. It's comic book kind of language. When this book was written, its first readers certainly knew there was not going to be any locust, scorpion, horse thing trampling on the earth. What's being described here is the more fundamental evil that lies behind all the darkness and corruption and greed and lust and anger in our world today. What we're seeing here is that behind all of the brokenness of the world today, there is another source. There is, it's being fueled by something else. This bottomless pit where these demonic creatures ascend from. It's like a black hole in modern astrophysics. A place of anti-creation and anti-matter and destruction and chaos. Now it's interesting. Jesus talked about this. He said that sexual immorality and theft and adultery and greed and wickedness and treachery and envy and slander and pride and stupidity. All these things, they, these things that hurt our lives, Jesus said... They come out of the black hole that has seeped into our hearts. In other words, there's a source of darkness inside of us that comes from beyond us. You know this. You know you've done things and you thought, 
I can't believe I did that. That selfishness really came out of me. What, What we're seeing here is that humans were made to reflect our wise, loving creator, but somehow our hearts have become full of rebellion and filth and wickedness. And here in Revelation, we're told that that is not only true of your heart, it is true of the cosmos. It's true also on a cosmic level. God made the world, and he made it to be good, and he loves it, but it has become infected with rebellion and destruction, and anti-life, anti-creation. Now, a sad irony of the world today, at least here in the West, is that after the 20th century, after a century of war and terror and high-tech genocide, we think we're enlightened. We, We have a way of telling history that says, oh, the Medieval, that was dark ages. We live in the light. Yeah, rich white Americans can act like they live in the light. But not in Sudan right now. And not in plenty of places in our world and in this city that are not enlightened by all the gifts that we get to experience in this room. You know, after a century that claims it was the enlightenment in which the gap between the rich and the poor is at a higher a bigger gap than it's ever been in the history of the world, in which genocide still occurs, in which all of these terrible things are still going on. The sad irony is that here in the West, we pretend to ourselves that evil is something we can deal with, with our technology, with our education, with democratic freedom to vote. There's this modern myth that we are progressing That the dark ages were terrible and now we are enlightened. And because of that, evil is nearly whipped. All we've got to do is a little mopping up. We found the solutions. Education, capitalism, democracy. These are the solutions to the world. But Revelation tells another story. It says that there is an evil behind the evil, and that is why education, democracy, technology, capitalism, all this, that is why it's not working. It's because there's an evil in this world that, can't, that doesn't exist on that register, that can't be solved on that register. That's why modern science and education and all of these things haven't stopped the darkness. It's because the problem is far more drastic than ignorance or poverty, or lack of immunizations for, for more, far more serious than a lack of education, or a lack of money, or a lack of freedom. So why should any of us want Jesus to be king? Well, look at chapter 11, verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Jesus takes all his power and all his authority and destroys the things we're trying so hard to destroy. The destroyers. There it is. 
Why should anybody want the story the Bible tells to be true? Why should any of us want Jesus to be the king of the whole earth forever and ever? Because when he reigns, he will destroy the destroyers. He will rescue his wonderful creation from the forces of antimatter and anti-creation and anti-life. When Jesus reigns, death will die. Don't you want that? I want it. I want all the darkness and evil that destroys families to be destroyed. I want all the darkness and evil that corrupts and destroys cultures and school systems and governments and mountaintops and watersheds. I want the destruction of this stuff to stop. That's why we want Jesus to be king. Not because we think we're better than everybody. Not because we want our culture over any other culture. No, that's not why. Now, the question at this point we should ask is, Okay, who wouldn't want that? How does that happen? What will lead that to happening? Well, let's pull back. Let's think about the whole passage that we heard read. Revelation 8 through Revelation 11. Now, just think about it for a minute. In chapters 8 and chapters 9, chapter 8 and 9, you have all this weird violence, wanton destruction. We have this deep-rooted, destructive wickedness and it emerges from the depth of human hearts but not only from human hearts it, it comes from an even more mysterious place than that and it infects systems of domination and oppression and all of this is driven by this dark foul fiendish hellish force of evil and it's infecting the entire cosmos with its death and suffering that's chapters 8 and 9. Now chapter 11, the kingdom of the world is given to our Lord and Messiah because we've made a mess of it. Because he can actually do what we want to do. So 8 and 9 is all the bad stuff, all the wickedness, all the evil, all the violence. 8 9. Then in chapter 11 at the end, you have he's reigning and he's destroying the destroyers. How do you get from chapter 8 and 9 to chapter 11? Simple math. Chapter 10. <laughs> That's how you get there. What happens in chapter 10? What is the difference between 8 and 9 where it's total chaos and violence and chapter 11 where it's a song of praise and peace and the destroyers are destroyed? What's the difference? Chapter 10. Look what happens in chapter 10. We have John who wrote the book. He wrote Revelation. We have John being commissioned as a prophet. Notice verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Okay, so remember, don't mistake the symbol for reality. This is highly symbolic language. This is really simple. You can get this. John is supposed to eat God's word. He's supposed to take God's word into his life. He's supposed to bring it all the way inside of him. And when he does that in chapter 10, we get to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we have these two witnesses who prophesy. 
Chapter 11, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days and clothed in sackcloth. Again, don't confuse symbol for reality. The two witnesses are the church. That's who they are. It's not some weird dude in Jerusalem that's going to get killed on national TV or anything like that. This is the church. It's the, I mean, we don't have time to go into all of it. It's the Gentile church and the Jewish Christians all coming together, the two witnesses. Now, notice what happens. Verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, when the church test- gives testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, notice verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now, what we're seeing here in highly symbolic language is the task of the church, the job of the church. The call of God's people is to witness to Jesus even when it means they suffer and quite possibly suffer a shameful death. That's the job of the church. Now, remember this was written, we've seen over the last several weeks, in the first century AD and in the early 60s. Somewhere around 60, 61, 62, something like that. And we've seen over the last few weeks that God has been telling the church, you're about to go through serious persecution. You're about to be killed. Lots of you are going to be killed. That's what this is talking about. He's telling them what's going to happen in a couple of years. Uh, This monster in in chapter 11, verse 7, this beast that rises up from the bottomless pit, this is the dark, evil power that will infect the Roman Empire and drive the Roman Empire to kill Christians. We use this language today. We might say about a government, it's evil or it's beastly. That's what it's doing here. And we know from history that from the year AD 64 until AD 67, the Roman Empire perpetrated a holocaust against Christians. This is exactly what happened. Now, pull back for a minute and think about all these chapters. Think about what's being communicated. God gives the church the vocation of bearing faithful, prophetic witness to the world. But that doesn't mean the church will be spared from suffering and death. In fact... It is the job of the church to bear suffering and death just like Jesus did. And notice, when the church does that, chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, notice what happens when the church suffers and dies. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. That's the martyrs. They went up to heaven in a cloud. The idea is a cloud of smoke. In other words, like a sacrifice, they were killed and they were turned into smoke and they rose up into heaven. They were burned alive is the idea and their enemies watched them and at that hour there was a great earthquake. Remember when Jesus was crucified, there was an earthquake. It's okay, so the the Christians are being killed like Jesus. They're experiencing what Jesus experienced and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Be heard the third woe is soon to come. When the enemies of Christ see the martyr witness of the church, the nations will at last glorify the creator. And the very next thing we're told is chapter 11, verse 15. Now the kingdom of the world has passed to our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. 
Think about this. When the church suffers like lambs, like the lamb, the kingdom of God becomes a reality on earth as in heaven. Out of the smoke and fire of the earlier chapters of this remarkable book, a vision is emerging. A vision of the creator God as the God of mercy, grieving over the rebellion and corruption of the world, but determined to rescue and restore the world. And how is he doing it? Through the faithful death of the lamb, and then through the faithful death of the lamb's followers. Do you see the plot? We get from the violence and chaos and brokenness of Revelation 8 and 9, To Jesus on the throne through the death of the church. That's the plot. Through the awful turmoil and trouble of the world, God establishes a people for himself who follow Jesus' whole example. Not just how he lived, but how he suffered and then how he died. And when the lamb's lambs follow the lamb to the slaughter. The na- look, look at chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons, idols of gold and silver, nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries. Chapter 9 ends with the world is refusing to repent. Chapter 11 says they give glory to the God of heaven. What's happened in between? The martyred church. This is how the world is brought to repentance. So that ultimately God will be king over all. Do you know that the time of the church's greatest growth was the first three centuries? When the Roman Empire was doing its best through torture and death. To stamp out Christianity. One of the great early bishops in the church. Who lived during that time said. The blood of the martyrs. Is the seed of the church. And that's proven to be true time and time again. Bishop Andudu has has arrived back safely from Sudan. I met with him on Friday. The government is still killing the Christians. And the church is flourishing. He told me story After story, he said the church is the only thing left. And it's growing. And it's strong. And it's stronger. Over over the last several weeks, we've seen that the job of the church is to pray. Now this week, we see that the job of the church is to bear faithful prophetic witness. And by the word prophetic, I mean you have to use words. That old saw about preach the gospel, use words if necessary, is a lie. You have to use words. And when you use words, did you see what it said about the two witnesses when they died? The world exchanged gifts and had a party because the witnesses had tormented them. Yeah, when you you bear faithful prophetic witness, you are misunderstood. And you are hated 
Because the people you're talking to think you hate them by what you're saying. Now, how do we do that? How do we become the kind of people who can bear faithful prophetic witness the same way John and the church did? We have to eat the word. We have to take it all the way inside of us. We have to get in, we have to read the Bible. We have to love it. We have to know that this is God's word. And when it comes inside of us, that's how we become faithful witnesses. Our job is to bear witness. Why? Not because those of us in this room who are Christians think we're better than those who are not Christians. We know we're not. Why do we bear faithful prophetic witness to the world even when the world so misunderstands it turns on us and hurts us? Why? Because that's how the nations will be healed. Not through our witness. Through our witness that provokes suffering and when we receive that suffering like the lamb. That's when the world will believe us. We do this for the healing of the nations. This is how God will overthrow the usurping forces of evil and establish through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that leads to your and my death and resurrection. When that happens, he will begin to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. If you are not a Christian, this is how much God loves you. That even if you hate him, he sends his only son to die for you. And this is how much we love you. You see, even if you think what the church is saying about sexuality and gender, even if you misunderstand us and think we're saying we hate you, we do not. We love you. And even if you turn on us and fire us, and restrict our economic opportunities. Even if you turn against us. We will take it. And even if there comes a day in this nation when you kill us. We will put our heads on the chopping block. Because we follow the lamb. And we have to get there. And if you think you can be a martyr when you can't even suffer being picked on at school or at work because of your views on sexuality, we have such a long way to go. You see, it's when, it's when the, the kickback happens that we need to stop looking at the kickback and thinking that that's the tragedy. And we need to see that as the gospel logic. And that when we respond to the kickback like a lamb, And we pay the price all the way. That's how the nations will be healed. And by God's grace, we will do this. We will do it. We will endure anger and social disapproval for the healing of the nations.